we are continuing to look at this gift of salvation that God has given to us as described in Peter. And although the subject is slightly different, the joy of salvation, what we look at today, the joy that we can have in this life is rooted in the salvation that we have come to know and hopefully cling to in this life that we live while on this earth. I find it interesting that um, Ken's comments in, in preface, preface to this reading of Psalm 119 was a description about Peter and uh, saying that Peter was a character, right? And we look at Peter's life as portrayed in the Gospels and we think, wow, what a character he is. And now we look at the words that he has penned to the church through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God's Word, which will last forever and forever, not the words of a man, but the Word of God given to this man to pass on to us today. And if anybody knew about the gift of salvation and the joy that comes from our salvation, it would be that character we know as Peter. Let's look in First uh, Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at just four verses, 6 through 9. We'll review a little bit in the beginning part of the message and talk about what we have looked at thus far. But let's read these verses together. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your souls, excuse me, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So we talked about this in Ken and John's Sunday school class several weeks ago. What's the difference between joy and happiness, Right? And, and Ken's kind of on a branch out there. Not really. But when we talk about how we understand joy and happiness, they really are very, very different. Happiness, in my understanding and in my experience, is directly the result of the circumstances that I find in my life. When my team wins, I'm happy. When I find out that the doctor gives me a good report, I am happy. When I've got a good meal to eat, I'm happy. When my children are doing well in school, I'm happy. But when all of those things are not true, what is my countenance? What is the deepest part of my emotion when my team loses and the doc report isn't good and I've got to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for myself, which I really enjoy, by the way, or my kids are really struggling in their lives, am I happy or can I find a deep-rooted joy in my life that is directly connected to this relationship that we have with the Lord that is given to us in this great gift of salvation? Well, Peter goes on to talk about the joy that is ours as the outcome of our salvation. So as we look in these four verses, we see, first of all, there is the call for joy. Peter says in the first part of verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice. Now, surprisingly to me, there is some difference of opinion about what in this means. In this. 
I believe it directly relates to the previous verses where, where Peter has outlined this incredible gift of salvation that has been given to us by the grace and the mercy of God, that which we did not deserve, that which we cannot earn. And as, as uh, Jim prayed this morning, love for the loveless, faith for the faithless, and life for the lifeless, God has given to us this great gift of salvation. Our salvation is to be our joy, regardless of the government, regardless of the culture, regardless of our finances, regardless of our health. We are to have joy because of our salvation. Now, in the preceding verses, Peter went to great length to talk about this great gift of salvation expressed to us as our inheritance. Now, if you come from a well-to-do family, and you know at the end of your parents' life there is going to be a monetary inheritance, boy, your ears perk up and your mind begins to race about all the things that I can do and all the things that I can have and all the places that I can go, doesn't it? I don't have any inheritance to look forward to. Nobody in my family is well-to-do. But in spite of that, I have a spiritual inheritance that you and I share in because of this salvation that we have been given by the Lord. Our inheritance is what we look forward to. And Peter goes on to talk about this inheritance that is the result of the mercy of God given to us in this gift of salvation. When we were dead, He made us alive. When we were without life and were decrepit, He made us new, a new creature. The old things have passed away. We have been made spiritually new with a desire, a capacity to honor the Lord and serve the Lord and to please the Lord. We who were formerly in bondage to sin, having no choice about our lives being entrenched in sin, have now through the cross of Christ been set free. You are free from the power of sin, and a big part of our struggle is working out how to appropriate that power over sin as a result of what God has given to us. He's given to us this new birth and salvation. We were not His people, now we are His people. We were once alienated from God, now we are the children of God. We once stood and shook our fists at God, and now we kneel at the cross giving thanks to the Creator who has given to us new life and new birth in our salvation. The hope that results from our salvation is a living hope. And as we talked about last week, the contrast of a living hope is no hope or a hope that is dead. The world has no hope. They have none. They have no substantive hope in their lives. They can hope for a better day. They can hope in a better earth. They can hope for a better world. They can hope for a better status of man. But their hope is futile and without any merit because it is not rooted in the reality of God, God's Word, God's standards, God's presence, and God's gift of salvation to His children. This living hope is expressed as an inheritance which is imperishable, unfading, undefiled, secured by God, protected by God, possessed by faith, and it is to be realized in and for all of eternity. You see, when you and I as the children of God remember 
that we have been given this inheritance spiritually by the Father and we sit securely in His hand, protected by Him, and this gift of salvation is secured by Him, unperishable and fading and undefiled, we ought to have great hope while in this life as we look forward to and long for the realization of our salvation on the day that Jesus comes back to take his church home or the day this physical life ends and we are ushered into his presence for all of eternity. The connection here is very, very clear. We are to rejoice over this incredible gift of salvation. The prophet Isaiah, writing to those who were dispersed in all kinds of foreign lands, says in Isaiah 35.10, And the ransomed of the Lord will return back to the promised land and come with joyful shouting to Zion, a metaphorical reference to heaven, as we would understand it today, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is our reality in eternity as a part of our inheritance. Jesus would say, in Luke, excuse me, the shepherds would say in Luke 2.10, The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. So the angel appeared and gave this message to the shepherds with the instruction that they are to go and tell all people of this exceedingly great joy that has come as Jesus has been born into this world. Romans 5.11 And not only this, but we also exalt or rejoice or give praise in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Finally, Philippians 4.4 Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, if you've studied the life of Paul, if anybody knew about difficulty and hardship and had a great challenge, physically speaking, about maintaining a sense of joy in salvation, it would be Paul himself. Man, oh man. The empowerment in his life that came from his relationship with God as he looked forward to and clung desperately to the salvation and the hope and the realization of that salvation enabled him to walk every day with an unwavering commitment to the Lord. So we have this call to joy in our hearts, regardless of our circumstances, because of this gift of salvation that we look forward to as a part of our eternal inheritance. But Peter would tell us that there is a great challenge to this joy. You know something about the challenge to joy, don't you? You don't have to live a very long life to know that there is always a challenge to maintaining joy in the Lord. This is expressed in the second part of verse 6. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Our challenge is found in troubles. The blues, which I'm not a huge fan of, were birthed over the realization of the trouble that exists in our lives. So much of the New Testament is written with an understanding of and an expectation for difficulty and hardship in our life that we shouldn't be surprised that we are going to experience great trouble in this life that we live. Now, there's four important perspectives that we need to maintain as we think about the realization of the trouble that we're going to have. First of all, 
Troubles are temporary. Peter says, even though now for a little while. You say, well, what does a little while mean? Is it a week? Is it a month? Is it a year? Is it 10 years? Is it 20 years? I don't know. God is the one that defines what a little while means. But in the contrast between this life that we live right here in the flesh, set against an eternity, whatever it is that we face, whether it be a a birth defect that has haunted us all of our lives, it is just a little while in the perspective of eternity. Our troubles really are short term, even though it might feel to us like it's never going to end, like this has been mine for as long as I can remember. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, which we'll look at in just a a few moments, I think it's in here, uh, Paul would call this a momentary or a light affliction. Paul said that. As he reflected on his life in the contrast of an eternity with God in heaven, a momentary or a light affliction. So, how temporary do your troubles feel to you? You know, I had surgery not quite eight weeks ago. When I woke up in ICU, I had a numbness and a tingling in this back part of my hand and my wrist, and it's still there. And I'm like, when is this ever going to go away? This is driving me crazy. I hate this. It's been eight weeks. Eight weeks. Right, yeah, that's the the humor of it, is eight weeks is nothing. I'm 55 years old, and if I make it to 70 years old, eight weeks is nothing. But in terms of eternity, it's even less than nothing. It's inconsequential, and we have this tendency to get overly focused on our troubles, even on those things which really aren't very significant. Second perspective that we need to keep keep in mind is that troubles come when necessary. Now, this is a very difficult part of this verse because it means some things that we probably wouldn't think it really means. So, little two-word phrase here, if necessary. But that if doesn't mean they might or might not come. It doesn't say when necessary, but you've got to know that that's the reality. Is that troubles are going to come when they are necessary, But in the context of the little bit of life that we're living, troubles will come if necessary. So they come when they serve a divine purpose in our lives. It's unfortunate that so many people think that they are to be exempted from difficulty and hardship in their life just because they are a Christian. It is irresponsible that in the church today, some teach that we should only expect to be blessed by God. And if there are any difficulties or any hardships in your life, it's because you lack the faith or the commitment to enjoy the blessings or the destiny, which is the big catchphrase in the modern church today, the destiny that God has for you. And oh, by the way, the destiny is health and wealth and everything goes your way and you open up your car door and and there it's clean for you and you go to the mail and there's a mysterious check for thousands of dollars and your kids just sit there saying, yes, Daddy, what can I do for you today? It's a fantasy world that is being taught in the modern church today that we should expect to be exempt from difficulty and hardship and we should only expect the blessings from God. Troubles are not the result of fate or random forces of nature. 
These circumstances, these hardships, these difficulties that you and I experience are under the direct control of God. Sometimes these troubles come in the form of a spiritual battle. Jesus would say to Peter in Luke chapter 22, Simon, Simon, which he said to him when he was in a carnal state, Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Do you think that was reserved just for Peter? Do you think that maybe the rest of the disciples were also being pursued by our enemy to be sifted like wheat? Do you think that maybe you and I today are being pursued by the enemy to be sifted like wheat? Being sifted like wheat doesn't mean a lot to us because we're not in an agrarian society. But when you're sifted by wheat, you are smashing that kernel to get all of the chaff away from it and then it's thrown up in the air and the chaff is blown away so that just the kernel is left. Only the valuable part. This is what Satan wanted to do to Peter. And look at Jesus' response here in verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brother. So in this response that Jesus had to the demand that Satan made, He didn't say, but I have exempted you, I have excluded you, I have taken that off the board. He says, no, I'm praying that you will pass the test, but I already know that you won't, so that when you turn back, because I know you're going to fail, you will strengthen your brothers. Peter would go on to say in chapter 419 of this book of the Bible, therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. It is the will of God that his children suffer. Now, wait a minute. I don't desire for my children to suffer. Do you? But you see, you and I don't love like God loves. You and I don't have an eternal perspective like God does. You and I perhaps have enabled our children to pursue a lifestyle that in the end is going to be detrimental to their well-being. So we protect them. We shelter them. We make sure they don't experience any negative, any, any negative consequences in their life. Well, God doesn't do that because He loves perfectly. He loves with the end result in mind. And so according to Peter here, and consistent with the rest of Scripture, it is according to God's will that we will suffer. Acts 14, verses 21 and 22. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You know, you go to that automatic car wash, and you sit there and you see the thing shaking around and that thing flapping around and that thing spinning around. Well, your car has got to go through that in order to get clean. Right? If you just sit there and says, boy, that looks pretty scary to me. I don't know what's going to happen to my car. I don't think I want to do that. Well, your car's not going to get clean. Well, in a similar way, we stand 
on the threshold of God's will, knowing that there are difficulties and hardships that are along that path that we have to go through. But you see, we know that God is with us every step of the way. We know that God has a divine purpose in that. We know that God is going to work out for our own good what he desires through the hardships that he allows to come into our lives. God allows these difficulties as a part of his will to accomplish his purposes in our life. God has plans. We have Him. I had a good friend tell me that when I was going through one of the most difficult parts of my life. And I'm asking the question, why? I, I, this isn't right. This isn't fair. This hurts. This is, this is very difficult. This has an impact on my family. This has an impact on my future. And as this individual was aware of all that I was going through, had the audacity to say, God has plans, you have Him. Well, you know, that's not what you want to hear when you're going through a hard time, is it? We don't want to hear what we need to hear. We want to hear what makes us feel better. Well, God has plans in the midst of these hardships, and we have Him. Now, as we look at this particular piece of the perspective that we need to have, there are at least six purposes that we need to be mindful of as we go through these hardships. Letter A, they humble us. We go through troubles because you and I need to be humbled. You know, I don't want to burst your bubble, but you're not all that. You might have been the big man on campus. You might have been the cheerleader that all the guys hoped would get to go on a date with you. But spiritually speaking, we're not all that. We need to be humbled. We can possess a spiritual pride that we don't know even exists in us. And boy, oh boy, when the hard times come, God will humble us so that we will kneel before Him and say, God, I need You. I am weak I am frail, I am feeble, I need you. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is a great passage of Scripture that many, many, many have spent time evaluating and memorizing. Here's what it says. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, Paul, given these great revelations through the vision of the Holy Spirit, God speaking His word to Paul, In order to keep Paul from exalting himself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to to keep me from exalting myself. Now, we don't need to get bogged down on what that was. We just need to know that it was there. Paul didn't like it, but he understood the purpose that was there. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Imploring is a very, very strong word. It's not just a, a... a feeble prayer that goes up, or a flippant, uh, oh, hey God, by the way, can you fix it? Paul was imploring God to remove this from him. It goes on to say, And he, God, has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And that was the two by four up against Paul's head. Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore... Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. 
For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. What Paul is saying here is that I am content with all of my distresses, all of my troubles, all of my circumstances, all of my difficulties, because I know that in them and through them, I will lean on God and He will see me through. Letter B. These difficulties, these troubles, will wean us from the world. I've got to be honest with you. The world is a bright and shiny place. And there are a bazillion different trappings that are out there for us that will capture our focus and our affection and our attention in such a way that it has the capacity to diminish our understanding of just how much we need the Lord. Well, you say, not me. Man, I've, I've fixed that a long, long time ago. Wait on, hang on. You better be careful. But difficulty and hardship will wean us from the world. John would say, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. We need to be constantly aware of how we might be allowing these things in the world to creep in our lives in such a way that they begin to take a higher priority in our life than they really ought. Letter C. These hardships... Teach us to value His blessings. You know, it's amazing how trivial the blessings of God can be when we have zero sense of our need for the Lord. When we're just cruising along and life is just going as great as we could ever expect, it's natural for us to have a diminished understanding of our need for the Lord. Prayer becomes very infrequent. Reading of God's Word becomes too time-consuming. Church attendance becomes difficult because I need time to rest and relax and go leisure. But when our world gets rocked, boy, oh boy, when we get refocused on the Lord, how much greater do the blessings of God appear in our lives? 1 Peter 4.13 But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory, the last day, you may rejoice with exultation. What this means is, the more we suffer, the more we will rejoice in our salvation as we hope for its consummation in the end times. You know, come Lord Jesus, come. You've heard people say that before, right? Well, when life's hard, you say that a little bit louder and a little bit more frequently, and it teaches us to value His blessings. Letter D, they enable us to help other people. <laughs> you know, our, our Christian life doesn't exist in a vacuum. The Bible tells us repeatedly, especially in the New Testament, that we are a body of believers. In the Old Testament, they were a community of faith. There was this interdependence, there was this interconnectedness that is implied in the Scripture when it talks about our being the body of Christ. And so when we go through great difficulty and great hardship, it will enable us to help others who are going through the same thing. 
I can empathize with you about stuff I've gone through, but that's hard for me to really identify with you when I don't have any idea of what that's really like. We read in 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, I might not be able to identify on a one-to-one ratio of what you're going through, but having been comforted by the Lord in my difficulty and hardship, I can pass on confidence in God's presence, in God's purposes, in your life in such a way that hopefully you would be able to receive joy and encouragement from those conversations. That's why we need to build relationships with one another. That's why we need to share our lives with one another. Because each of us have unique experiences that will benefit somebody that we don't know will be benefited by that. The more we get to know the body that we are a part of, this little local body, the more likely it is that we can help and encourage and comfort those who need it. And we can be the hands and the feet of the Lord in that respect. Letter E. These troubles chasten us for our sins. Sometimes, because we're going astray, God says, okay, I'm going to put a stop to that, and I'm going to intervene. Here you go. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 7. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. That all caps is, is a quote from the Old Testament. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? You see, God loves us too much to let us run astray. There is a rope attached, and we get... To the end of that road, guess what happens? You get jerked back, and God says, not any longer. It's time to fix what's wrong, and you need to come back to the Lord. I think because some of us possess a spiritual pride, and because we have this sense of self-righteousness, we don't expect to be disciplined by the Lord. Some of us get more hardship than we can even understand and we can't tell the difference between God pruning us to bear more fruit and God disciplining us because we're living with, with way too much sin in our life. I can't answer that question for you. Only you can find that out in your relationship with the Lord. Now, last one, letter F. These troubles, they strengthen our spiritual character. And I believe that this is likely the higher percentage of the this, of this six that have been mentioned, and there may be others. But these difficulties and these hardships have as their end goal to strengthen our spiritual character. Well, God, in there another way? <laughs> I guess not. You know, Peter's, Paul's not the only one that says it. Peter's not the only one that says it. James isn't the only one that says it. Jesus isn't the only one that says it. All throughout the Scripture, there is this expectation that we are going to experience difficulty and hardship, and the result of that is going to be growth in our walk with Him. Paul would write in Romans chapter 5, And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, rejoicing, giving thanks in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, 
and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You know, you and I don't get to set the parameters by which God chooses to bring about spiritual growth in our lives. We are to rejoice in the Lord always. We are to exalt in our tribulation knowing that God is doing something that we can't yet see, but because we trust Him, we know that it is for our good. Now, the third part of this as we look at the troubles and the challenge to our having joy is this. Troubles are painful. Well, duh, right? Don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. Peter writes, you have been distressed. That's a strong word. Nothing quite gets our attention like pain. Why? Pain hurts. Pain is unwelcomed. Pain is a constant reminder that something is wrong. You know, I haven't got it yet this year, thankfully, but I I get these real dry fingers, especially my thumb, this one, and the skin will split and it gets pretty big and pretty deep and every time I touch something, it hurts. And it's a constant source of pain. A little thing like that and the tip of my thumb, but it's a constant reminder that something's not right and it bothers me in everything that I do and it's ow, ow, all the time. Hey, troubles are painful. We don't like them and we would prefer them to go away. Well, nothing quite gets our attention like pain. Now, this may refer to physical pain. It might refer to mental anguish like sadness or sorrow. It might refer to great emotional distress. It might relate to disappointment or anxiety or fear. But there are a myriad number of examples as to how we can be distressed in this life and these things can bring to us great pain, but we need to know that God has a divine purpose in them and it's to grow us up in our walk with the Lord. Now, there are going to be circumstances and hardship that we go through because of the result of the fall, and we're not going to look at this passage of Scripture. We're going to make... uh, Hustle along, along here a little bit. Genesis three sixteen to 19, when God hands down the curse to Adam and Eve for their willful sin, that you're going to great pain in childbirth, and by the sweat of your brow, you're going to make a living. It wasn't that way in the Garden of Eden. So there is going to be general difficulty in our life, but there's also divine difficulty that God brings to us for very specific purposes. So the fourth challenge that we see in this is Number four, troubles are varied. varied. Peter says that we are distressed by various trials. Trials can be persecution. They can be temptation. They can be difficulty. That word there for trouble or trial has a number of different ways that it can be translated. So sometimes our being tempted to sin is a part of our trouble or a part of our trial. Sometimes it is the persecution that we face because we're living a very obvious life for the Lord. Sometimes it's the stuff that God allows to come in because He wants to prune us and grow us in our relationship with Him. So whatever it is, what we need to remember is that there's no trouble, that some facet of God's grace and God's presence cannot supersede God will see us through everything that we go through, whether it's general or very specific as a part of his will. God's grace is sufficient for every human trial. We either believe that or we're going to be tested to believe that. 
Number three, the process to joy. It doesn't just come automatically. It doesn't come because you've read the verses. It doesn't come because you, you hope you're there. It comes because you've actually gone through it. While the events themselves are not joyful, the resulting end result is going to be joyful for us. So number one, we see the proving of genuine faith. Verse 7 says, so that the proof of your faith, that proof there, that word means testing, the testing of your faith may prove that it really is a genuine faith. Because make no mistake about it, within the church today, there are a number of people who, like the parable of the sower, have the word of God in their life, and it's on the hard soil, and the enemy comes and takes it. It's amongst the thorns, and it gets choked out. It's in the shallow ground, so it gets burnt up by the heat of the sun. And some, it, it rests in fertile soil, the heart, in such a way that it bears fruit. So there is a testing of our faith that is a part of these troubles that we go through. We see this all the way back in Exodus, when God had led his people through the wilderness, excuse me, through the Exodus, and as they embarked on the wilderness because of their disobedience, Exodus 16:4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. So to whom is our faith to be proven to? Well, does not this omnipotent God that we love already know the result of the test that we go through? Yeah, he does. So the testing is not for God. The testing is for us. It's to put on a platter right there in front of us so that we can't miss it. This is how little faith you have in who I am and my ability to preserve and protect you as you go through this hardship. Deuteronomy 8.2 You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. So let me ask you this question. How valuable to you is a proven faith? Well, I can tell you from my own experience and from the experience that I've had with people in the church over these 20 plus years of ministry is that people who struggle in the assurance of their salvation would love to have a proven faith. People who believe that they can lose their salvation because they've been taught it's secured by your works or your efforts would love to have a proven faith. Well, this proven faith comes as we go through these difficulties and trials, learning what it is that God is teaching us, repenting of the sin that God reveals to us, and allowing His divine purpose to make us stronger than we were before we entered into the trial. James would say in his, his writing, chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces Endurance. Do you think James wrote that as a theoretical lesson or because he went through this himself? I believe James had a proven faith. I believe Peter had a proven faith. I believe Paul had a proven faith. I believe the individuals listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 all had 
a proven faith. And what they would tell you and I, if they could enter into this room today, is it is an incredibly valuable thing for you to know that you know that you know who God is, that He is there, and that He is working this out for your good. Number two, there is the purifying of faith. Verse 7 continues, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. Gold in the ancient world was thought to be the most precious of all the metals. It's still an incredibly valuable metal today. But you know what? You can go and buy gold, and you can buy the most pure gold there is, and it's only 99.9% pure. Gold will perish at some point. But our faith which is more precious and more valuable than gold, is imperishable as it goes through the testing that God gives to us. To be tested by fire means that God desires to separate the impurities. If you've ever watched gold get purified and you see it go through the refiner's fire and you see the the dross on the top of that molten metal that gets discarded once it's been through the fire, that's the sin that would exist in your life and in mine when we go through the fire. God doesn't bring it all out at once, but he brings it out bit by bit and piece by piece to push it out of our lives so that we are more holy than we were and so our faith is tested by fire. Number three, there is the hope in faith. A part of this process in joy is the hope in our faith that we have. Verse 7 concludes, excuse me, reading the whole, the, the whole verse, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So our genuine faith and our purified faith will eventually result in our being praised by God. Now, when you look at this passage of Scripture, it sounds like our faith is going, to be, is going to bring praise and glory to the Lord. And it will in this life. But I, I read a, a half a dozen different commentaries, and they were consistent in saying that's not what this verse means. What this verse means is that when Jesus is revealed, our proven faith, our genuine faith, our refined faith is going to result in our being praised by the Father when we stand before Him and give an account of our lives. We will share in His glory at His coming, and we will be honored by Him for our genuine faith that we have lived out in this lifetime. Now, before you lose track of what I'm saying and think that it's not right, listen to these verses. 1 Corinthians 4, and 4, 4, verse 5. Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, the contrast between the righteous and the unrighteous. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. What did Jesus say? Well, Jesus, in the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25 says this, he says, The master said to him, Well done, 
good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. You see, you and I, when we stand before the Lord, are going to get an attaboy for the life that we've lived. I don't know how to qualify that other than saying we will be praised by the Father because of the life that we lived. I don't know if it's going to be a... He did okay. Well done. Or if it's going to be a grand affair where heaven's attention is, is fixed on those who have been faithful, who have entered in to the praise and the glory of the Father given to us by the Father. I don't know how that's going to work. I just know that it's going to happen. We'll stand before Him, we'll give an account of our life, and we will hear some form of, well done, thou good and faithful servant. What do you want to hear said of you when you stand before Him? And make no mistake about it, each of us will stand before Him. Well, don't let troubles get in the way of your faith being proven to be genuine tested by fire, resulting in the praise that will come to us. Lastly, very quickly, number four in our outline, our ultimate joy is found in His return. Verse 8, And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You know, we've seen pictures of Jesus. They're not accurate. We've seen renderings. They're not accurate. We've not seen Him. We don't really know what he looks like, but we believe in him, don't we? We believe in the person of Jesus as portrayed to us through the Bible, and we greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory at his imminent return. What does joy inexpressible mean? I think it's so great that we we don't know how to even articulate what that's going to be like. We, we have an inadequate vocabulary to express our joy when our faith has been proven and tested by the refiner's fire. Number two, our ultimate joy is the consummation of our salvation. It's expressed as the end result of our salvation. We will have great joy Verse 9, obtaining is the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There's both a present and a future joy that is being identified here. You see, our joy is not to be reserved for heaven. Our joy is to be completed when we get to heaven, but we are to possess joy in the present as we have a longing hope for the joy of the future. Our faith, our belief in the present, in God's presence, in His walking with us, in His purposes, our faith in that creates great joy in the consummation of our future salvation. Let me express it like this. When you have a kid and it's getting close to Christmas, right? And the shopping started and the tree is up and the presents begin to show at the tree... There is a present joy 
in the heart of that child or in those children as their imagination runs wild at what might be under the tree for me, right? There's a present joy as they long for the day when they get to open that gift, right? You see, we are to possess a present joy in this life regardless of the difficulties and the hardships as we long for the day when we get to fully unwrap the gift of salvation that will result in us a joy that is inexpressible. But we don't have to wait until the day we open that gift to find joy in the Father who loved us and saved us and has blessed us so richly and promises to walk with us and to do what's best for us and to protect us and provide for us. You see, there's great reason to rejoice in the Lord right now regardless of anything that we go, for, go through. That's joy. But boy, oh boy, there is an inexpressible joy that comes on the day we stand before Him and get to see Him as He really is. And what a humbling experience it must be to hear the King of Kings say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank You that we can be assured of Your presence in our lives. You've promised us in Your Word. And we know that You are truth and You speak only truth and that You are faithful to what You speak. But God, I know in the frailty of our human nature, we can often wonder about Your presence, wonder about the watchfulness of Your eye as we go through difficulty and hardship. God, would You dispel that is a lie from the pit of hell. Would You remind us of the great blessing that we have in our salvation as we long for the day when it's fully realized. And along the way, God, would you remind us of all the many ways you blessed us in this physical life. Father, we know that we can't walk this path alone. And echoing the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians, Our weakness results in your power being perfected in us. We need you. We need your presence. We need your peace. We need your purposes. We need to know that you're there. Would you remind us as we read your word? Would you remind us through the circumstances that we experience? Would you draw our hearts to yourself in such a way that we would never wonder about who you are, what you're doing, but we would just humbly give you thanks, that we would rejoice in the Lord always. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.